Chapter Twenty of An Eye for an Eye by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty, A Night Adventure. In the silent evening hour, as the dusk darkened and twilight slowly faded into night, I was conscious of a kind of fascination against which my moral sense rebelled, but from which there was no escape. We talked on, I striving ever to learn the truth she careful to conceal it from me i saw how unexpected but natural were her transitions of temper and feeling noting the contest of various passions the wild hurricane of resentment melting into tears faintness and languishment and endeavored time after time but always in vain to obtain a further confession from her lips that she existed in deadly fear of some dread secret being revealed was vividly apparent just as it was also clear that my ill-timed observation regarding her mysterious presence in that house of mystery at kensington had placed her upon her guard and proved to her a fact of which before she had no confirmation her airy caprice and provoking petulance which had so attracted me when we had been first introduced had now been succeeded by a mixture of tenderness with artifice and fear with submissive blandishment she quailed before me when I rebuked her tenderly for her lack of confidence in me, partly because of her female subtlety, partly owing to natural feeling. Nevertheless, when I reviewed the situation, and calmly and deliberately reflected upon her attitude, I saw plainly that she regarded me as something more than a mere acquaintance, even though her character was so complicated that no one sentiment could exist pure and unvarying in such a mind therefore sadly with a heavy feeling of non-achievement i took a long and lingering leave of her and was driven back to shepperton station by simpson my mind overflowing with puzzling thoughts great as was my hesitation to believe that her conscience was a guilty one nevertheless her own words were now sufficient proof that my suspicions were not unfounded yet i loved her i still adored her with all my soul even though i had kissed the slim white hand that had sought to send me to the grave these and a thousand similar thoughts whirled through my bewildered brain as i sat back alone in the ill-lit railway carriage puzzled and baffled i sat plunged in deepest melancholy and despair when on the train drawing up at the quiet lethargic station of hampton the door of the compartment was suddenly flung open and a well-known cheery voice cried hello erwin get out here i want to speak to you i roused myself instantly recognizing boyd standing on the platform in the semi-darkness with an expression of surprise at such a meeting i jumped out and joined him he explaining that he had come down from waterloo with the object of finding me and had waited at shepperton station for my arrival there he however had not spoken to me lest the man simpson should chance to mention the fact at riverdean but why are you down here i inquired surprised well he answered in a low voice We've got a piece of most secret investigation before us tonight. I've waited for your assistance. We are going to search the Hollies. Search the Hollies? I echoed. Yes, he answered. You'll remember Miss Glaslyn's letter to you, stating that the house was closed and the servants are away on holiday. Therefore, now's our time. We must, however, act so that Lady Glaslyn and her daughter have no suspicion that the place has been overhauled. I obtained a search warrant from Sir John Gibbons, the chief of the local bench, this morning, and now we'll just satisfy our curiosity. But the place is locked up, isn't it? I suggested, amazed at this sudden resolve. 
of course we must get in how we can only being careful not to attract the attention of any neighbors and to leave no trace behind that intruders have entered then we are to go to work like burglars i observed smiling exactly he answered we had now left the station and were walking along an ill-lit path which skirted the railway until we gained the high road leading into old hampton he explained the precautions he had taken namely to tell the constable on the beat of our intentions and imposing upon him secrecy and also to arrange for the local plain-clothes officer to be on duty in the vicinity his proposal seemed to possess all the elements of adventure therefore notwithstanding my hesitation to commit any act which might further implicate the woman i loved i expressed myself eager and ready to accompany him nine o'clock chimed from the square old tower of hampton church that landmark so well known to those who frequent the river and boyd declared that it was too early to commence operations people were about and we might be observed therefore we entered that old-fashioned inn where the ancient sign is still suspended from a beam across the road a hostelry much patronized by boating parties who there replenish their hampers and entering the billiard-room we whiled away the time playing and gossiping with a couple of tradesmen who judging from their pronouncements were local notabilities perhaps district councillors we remained until the landlord called time gentlemen please then lighting our cigars went forth strolling through the quaint old-world village and skirting the long high wall of bushy park towards lady glasslands the night was dark and overcast a gusty wind had sprung up precursory of rain and in our ears sounded the hum of the telegraph wires the weather favored us for such an excursion boyd did not care for a perfectly still night at length when we had been walking perhaps a quarter of an hour along the dark deserted road a man bearded and rather shabby-looking suddenly emerged from the shadow of the wall and greeted boyd with the policeman's password all right sir are the things there boyd inquired yes sir i put the lamp the jemmy and the keys under a laurel bush on the left of the back door well said my friend i think you'd better come with us we may have some difficulty in getting in very well sir the man answered and continued to walk by our side he was smoking a pipe and as we neared the house he knocked out the ashes and placed it in his pocket no dogs there i hope boyd said addressing him no sir none i confess to feeling a thrill of excitement for the business of breaking and entering a dwelling house was entirely new to me the hampton road is ill-lit and after ten at night utterly deserted therefore in our walk we met no one except the solitary policeman who stood beneath a lamp and greeted boyd with a low all right sir as we passed on towards the hollies all was in darkness not a soul was about save ourselves and the policeman standing watchful and motionless beneath the street lamp fifty yards away the well-kept garden with its laurels its monkey trees and its old yews was shut off from the road by a high wall in which was a pair of heavy iron gates giving entrance to the gravel drive these gates were locked and secured by a chain and formidable padlock a fact which showed that to enter we must climb them the houses on either side were of rather meaner order than the hollies and in one of them a light still showed in an upper window in order not to attract the occupiers of these houses we conversed in low whispers and in obedience to the local detective's suggestion climbed the gates one after another and carefully descended within the garden on either side of the house extended walls some ten feet in height 
with doors in them giving access to the rear of the premises, and again, guided by the plain clothesman, we scaled this wall, a somewhat perilous process, it being spiked on the top. As it was, indeed, I made a serious rent in an almost new pair of trousers, much to Boyd's amusement. At last, when we were in the rear garden, our guide began foraging beneath a laurel bush and brought forth a dark lantern, a short, serviceable-looking jemmy, and a big bunch of skeleton keys. "'I examined the place this afternoon,' he explained. "'This door is the only one locked from the outside. Therefore, if we can pick the lock, we shall be able to enter and get away without leaving a trace.' "'Very well,' said Boyd impatiently. "'Let's get to work.' And taking the keys he went to the garden entrance and commenced work upon the lock, while his assistant lit and held the lantern. Every effort, however, to open the lock proved a failure. "'It's a chub, a brahma, or one of those lever locks,' said Boyd, in a low tone, giving it up after he had tried all the keys in vain. "'It won't do to force the door, for that'll betray us.' "'Why not try a window?' I suggested. "'No, sir,' said the plain clothesman. "'They're all barred, I'm afraid.' "'But those on the first floor,' I suggested, looking up at one, evidently a landing window, over the door. "'We might try if we could only reach it,' Boyd said, laying down the keys upon the doorstep. If we forced the catch we could screw it down again before we left. In order to discover something by which we might gain access to the window, we all three crept carefully across the lawn and down the long old-fashioned garden to an outhouse where, after some search, we found an old and rotten ladder, half the rungs of which seemed missing. This we carried back, and a few moments later Boyd, mounting with a strong clasp-knife which he had taken from his pocket, began slowly working back the catch until at last he was able to throw up the window and crawl in. Without a sound I followed, the local detective clambering in after me. We found ourselves on the first-floor landing. Therefore, descending the stairs to the main hall, we lit the candles provided by the plain clothesman, and after taking the precaution to let down the blinds of the front windows, commenced an active search of the drawing-room, that spacious old-fashioned apartment into which I had been shown when I had called. Our search, directed by Boyd, was careful and methodical. Neither nook nor corner escaped him, although we replaced everything just as we found it. So large were the rooms that we found the lights we carried were not sufficient to give us proper illumination. Therefore we sought the gas meter, and after turning on the gas lit jets in the various rooms. Fortunately all the windows were furnished with Venetian blinds. Therefore we let them down and closed them, so that no light should be noticed outside. An air of desolation hung about the place, and every sound we made echoed weirdly, for at the dead of night all noise becomes exaggerated. The drawing-room yielded practically nothing, therefore we passed into a well-furnished morning-room, and thence to the dining-room, which we likewise thoroughly overhauled. None of these rooms bore any trace of the struggle with poverty which the innkeeper's wife had alleged. Indeed, in the drawing-room was a fine grand piano of one of the best-known makers, together with several rare works of art. All the rooms bore signs of being the abode of a rich and cultured family, the old oak in the dining-room being, I noted, genuine, evidently antique, Italian, while the upholstery and carpets were of the first quality. On the walls of those ground-floor rooms were many examples of old as well as modern masters, one portrait hanging in the dining-room representing Ava herself, a half-length picture, undoubtedly from recent sittings, signed by an artist extremely well-known in London. 
In this room also were antique, high-backed oak chairs, lined with old tapestry, the back and arms bearing armorial bearings embroidered in colored silks, evidently the arms of the glasslands, for a similar device was upon the plate. On ascending to the first floor we found the house to be of far larger proportions than we had imagined, for off a long, well-carpeted corridor opened quite a number of bed and other rooms, each of which we proceeded to inspect. "'We haven't found a single thing below,' Boyd observed to me as we entered the first of these rooms, evidently one of the spare bedrooms, for the place was very dirty and neglected in comparison with the other apartments. Let's hope we may come across something here. Nothing was locked, and five minutes sufficed to show us that no attempt had been made to conceal anything in any of the two chests of drawers or in the wardrobe. So thoroughly did Boyd search that in each room we went around the waistcoating, tapping it with the jemmy and examining any part which appeared to be loose or movable. The next room, apparently Lady Glaslyn's room, with a small dressing-room adjoining, we searched with redoubled energy, but beyond establishing the fact that her ladyship was not in want of money by the finding of three five-pound notes placed carelessly in an unlocked drawer, there was nothing to arouse our curiosity. Adjoining the dressing-room, with its window overlooking the road, was a small but elegant apartment upholstered in pale blue, quite a luxurious little room with a piano, evidently a bourgeois. The carpet was so thick and rich that our feet fell noiselessly, while near the window was a handsome Louis XV escritoire inlaid with various woods and heavy mountings of chaste ormolu. A pretty cosy corner occupied the angle beside the tiled hearth, while the little bamboo table with its small shelves spoke mutely of cosy five o'clock tea, often served here. "'I wonder what's in this,' Boyd said, advancing to the escritoire, while his assistant lit the gas lamp finding it locked, my friend bent, examined the keyhole carefully, and then commenced to ply the various skeleton keys. For some time he was unsuccessful, but at length the lock yielded, and he opened it. Then, while the local officer took the dark lantern and went along the corridor to explain what further rooms there were and their character, Boyd and I proceeded to carefully examine every paper, letter, or document the escritoire contained. Some letters were addressed to Lady Glaslyn, others to Ava, but most of them were ordinary correspondence between relatives and friends, while the folded documents were receipted bills, together with a file of papers relating to some action at law regarding property near Aberdeen. Behind the receptacle in which we found these letters was a panel which Boyd at once declared concealed some secret drawers, and being well versed in all the contrivances of cabinet-making, he very soon discovered the means by which the panel could be released as he had predicted, its removal disclosed three small drawers. To the first I gave my attention while he took out the contents of the second. The letters, of which there were seven or eight secured by an elastic band, I took out and read, being puzzled greatly thereby. They were all typewritten and bore the postmark London S.E. The first had been received about three months before, the last as recently as a fortnight ago. They were very friendly, commencing, Dear Ava, and although the writer was apparently extremely intimate, there was, however, not a word of love, a fact which gave me some satisfaction. They all, without exception, contained a most mysterious reference to the silence, in terms extremely guarded and curious, one urging the utmost caution and declaring that a grave peril had unexpectedly arisen which must at all hazards be removed. 
the writer did not appear to be a very educated person for in many places there were mistakes in spelling while all were devoid of both address or signature bearing only the single initial z i passed them over to boyd asking his opinion and as he sat at the writing flap reading them we were both suddenly started by hearing a plaintive cry near us it was a poor lean cat who had accidentally been shut up there and was undoubtedly starving these letters are very strange boyd observed looking up at me i wonder to what the silence refers i don't know i said there's evidently some very good reason that they've been concealed here as i was speaking i took from beneath some letters still remaining in the secret drawer boyd had opened a wooden pill-box from which i removed the lid there being disclosed a small quantity of a peculiar grayish-blue powder hello boyd exclaimed with a quick glance at it what's that i wonder no label on the box it looks suspicious yes i agreed i wonder what it is that it should be so carefully concealed leave it aside for a moment he said then taking up a large envelope which while i had been reading the letters he had been carefully examining he drew from it two photographs do you recognize the originals of these he inquired with a grave smile great heavens i gasped why they are the man and the woman whom we found at Fillmore place exactly he said in a voice of satisfaction just as his assistant re-entered then before i could recover from my bewilderment he took up the little wooden box exclaiming this powder here is a very suspicious circumstance but we'll test it at once turning to the local officer he said i saw you eating something when you met us and you put part of it in your pocket what was it a sandwich my wife always makes me one when i go out on night duty the man explained have you any of it left for answer he drew from his pocket a portion of an uneaten sandwich and placed it upon the table boyd with his pocket-knife cut off a piece of the meat upon it sprinkled a grain or so of the mysterious powder and threw it down to the hungry cat which was mewing loudly and purring round our legs the thin creature ravenously hungry devoured it but ere ten seconds had passed and while we all three were watching attentively it staggered with a faint cry and almost without a struggle rolled over dead as i suspected boyd observed turning to me this is the powder from the herbalist end of chapter twenty recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com